So this morning we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. You can turn to chapter 3. The book of Acts gives us this kind of a blueprint of the early church, the things they did and, and the way they acted, and, and it's, it's there for us to, to learn from. So we love the book of Acts and all that it covers. Last week we, we saw the first recorded miracle, and we saw how the church began to grow because of this miracle, because God used it to authenticate His messengers and also the message and it was powerful and effective. If you weren't here last week or aren't familiar with the story, uh, Peter and John on the way to the temple to go and meet and, and be around the other people were confronted with this lame man who'd been lame from birth 40 years who, who asked them for alms. And instead of giving them money, Peter says in verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And so the man responded by leaping and praising God, and he, he made his way into the temple where the people there recognized him and were filled with, with amazement and wonder that he'd been healed. And so that's kind of where we pick it up this morning. The miracle that took place is actually the launching pad for the message that is about to happen, and that's what we're going to look at today. And I just want to point out that it's important that the good we do as Christians results in the proclamation of the gospel. This is key. It's great that so many Christians are out there doing good in the world. But if it doesn't result in the proclamation of the gospel, it, you know, it's nice. <laughs> it's, it's meeting a temporal need, which is good, but it's not meeting the most pressing need, which is an eternal need. And so the good we do needs to result in, in the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what we're going to see happening here. So we're going to pick things up in verse 11, where the people gather around Peter and John to find out more about this miracle that's occurred. And, and Peter is going to use this opportunity. He's going to seize it to proclaim the gospel. And this is actually the second sermon that Peter has preached since being filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, it's also a dandy. You know, Pete, Peter's, Peter's turned out to be a pretty good preacher. This, he's going to be two for two after this, which is, which is good. So verse 11 says, while he, and that's speaking of the man formerly known as lame, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, here's an opportunity. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk. Piety is just a word for godliness, that kind of idea. And we talked about this last week briefly, but it's interesting how quick people are to exalt men instead of God. They see this take place and they think, oh, let's exalt these guys. We, even God's people do this. We, we like celebrities. We like to celebritize people and pastors and, and these kinds of things. And, and Peter and John wouldn't have any of it. I like this. They said, no, they're going to deflect the credit away from themselves and put it where it rightly belongs onto Christ. Don't allow yourself to become enamored with any man or woman. <laughs> it's a mistake. Uh, you're just going to get disappointed at some point and disillusioned from it. That's the way it works. There's only one hero, only one real hero, and it's Jesus. You know, people sometimes say nice things about the church and what we're doing here. And, and I love hearing that. It's, it's nice to hear it. But just like Peter, we know it's not because of our own power or piety that it's happening. And, and it's all because of God's power and might. And I love to tell this story 
of, uh, I think it was about a year after we'd started the door. We were doing our little annual picnic over at the Smith's house that we do. And uh, David's dad, John, if you don't know John, he's kind of a character. But he came out that day and he sees all these people spread out across this lawn. And uh, it was kind of amazing to see. And he says, boy, can you believe that all of this came out of David, Brent, and Doug? <laughs> and it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> it, was, it was a proper observation by, by John. It's like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And it's kind of, you know, so, so the, the, the question Peter asks is the same thing we would ask. Why are you staring at us? Don't look at us. Look to Jesus. He's the one you're looking for. He's the one responsible for all of this. And nobody really should have had to wonder about this because for the last three years, they've seen these things take place over and over and over again at the hands of Jesus, right? Everywhere he went, he would heal people. He would, he would feed people with a, you know, a small amount of food. He would do, you know, calming waves and doing all kinds of crazy things, even raising people from the dead, including himself. So there should be no surprise at this. They should know who it is and, and, and why it's happening. Uh, but Peter, being the helpful guy that he is, points them in the right direction anyway. In verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. He's pointing to the right person. And then he points out this Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Peter could have just said, God glorified Jesus, but, but he doesn't. He, he distinguishes the God he's giving credit to. The God of the Bible. The God who is revealed in the Bible, not the God that people make him out to be. And it's kind of sad that we have to specify which God we're talking about, but it was true then and it's still true today. When you say God, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. So Peter drills down on who he's, who he's speaking about. He specifies that the power that it took to heal that man could only come from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead could only come from this very same God. And the power that it took to heal this lame man could have only come from the same God. So, so there, he's, he's, he's drawing the, the, the lines dotted over to Jesus so that they'll know who it is. And then without worrying even a little about the repercussions, and if you recall the way people treated you know, Jesus and, and the apostles up to this point, it wasn't good. But without any fear of that or any fear of offending them, he begins to list the charges that they're guilty of. Right? This, is not, this isn't easy to do. This is a crowd of people, a lot of people. As we hear Peter's words, it becomes clear that the transformation of Peter is almost as impressive as the transformation of the lame man. I mean, it's like, what's going on here? This is Peter, you know? You remember Peter, right? This is a different, different man. And the truth is that both of these events are unexplainable apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the answer to this. So first, he accuses them of rejecting Jesus and delivering him to Pilate. You might remember that Pilate had found nothing wrong. He, he, he found Jesus innocent, and he was going to let him go. But they insisted that Pilate not do that, and they asked for a murderer to be released instead. They traded their Messiah for a murderer, and Peter points it out very clearly to them. And then he hits even harder. Oh, speaking of murder, you guys killed the author of life. Ouch. 
That's quite an accusation. And the author of life is a title that they would have understood. Who's that speaking of? That's a title for God. And so Peter's making Jesus equal with God when he gives him this title. You killed the author of life. We, we know from the Genesis account that Jesus has the power to create something from nothing. And that's exactly what happened with this lame man. He had no legs, no feet that could work at all for, for 40 years. And somehow Jesus made his legs leapable. And I know that's not a word, but it's good. He made his legs leapable. That's, that's something only the author of life can do. And Jesus isn't only the author of physical life, but of spiritual life too. If you remember the story in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus heals the paralytic, uh, he basically prefaces it by saying, but that you might know that the Son has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, take up your mat and walk. So he's saying, if I can do the one thing, I can do the other. His authority to heal physically proves that he has the authority to heal spiritually, which, which is much more crucial to our human condition. And then so that no mistake can be made at all, in verse 16, Peter makes sure that they know that it is the name of Jesus that makes all this possible. So he says in verse 16, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. The name of Jesus. I love that name. It's a powerful name. I don't think there's any other name like it since the beginning of time until, you know, the end of time. It's a name that creates a reaction in people, positive and negative. You hear the name Jesus and, and you know, it's like, uh-oh, something's going to happen, right? And it's funny how, you know, we've talked about this before, but even even the fact that it's that it's a curse, that people use that. You don't hear anybody else, you don't, you know, maybe I've never heard it, but if you, you know, you smash your thumb, you don't yell out, you know, Muhammad or anything like that. You don't hear that, but you hear his name being thrown down. And and it's not a coincidence. There's power in his name and there's no other name like it. Now, verse 17, Peter shows his listeners some grace. And he says something that I think is pretty fascinating. In verse 17, he says, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He says, I know you acted in ignorance. And I'm surprised by that. I don't know why. When I heard that, I thought, wow, that's interesting. And, and so when I, when I looked, looked at this and thought about it, um, they acted in ignorance when it came to killing Jesus, the author of life. Uh, they knew they were killing somebody. They just didn't know who it was. And that's really what it's saying here. Um, you know, when Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them for, for they know not what they do. I think he's saying the same thing there. First Corinthians 2.8 says this, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, who would knowingly kill God? I mean, no, nobody would do that. But so that, that's what he means when he says you acted in ignorance. Ignorance isn't the same as innocence. They're different. So not fully knowing what they were doing doesn't excuse them. They're still guilty of this. And they really didn't have that great of excuse, and that's what Jesus points out to them. They shouldn't have been ignorant because of everything that was spoken about Jesus in the Old Testament. Peter says all the prophets foretold him. All of them. (laughs) That's pretty clear. All of them told you about him. And he must have certainly had Isaiah 53 in mind here. I don't know if you're familiar with Isaiah 53. If you're not, go read it. Not right now, but read it. 
It's fascinating. It so clearly speaks of Jesus. Some 700 years before Jesus was born and went through what he went through, Isaiah 53 describes it in detail. It describes the suffering servant that the Christ would have to suffer. All of that is there. He's also going to mention Moses talking about Jesus as the prophet that would come. He's saying there's a prophet that's going to come. He's going to be really important, and you better listen to him because anybody who doesn't listen to this prophet will be cut off from God's people. That's significant. He's saying Moses pointed to him, and he's even going to say that Abraham pointed to him. He's the seed that was promised that would be the blessing to all nations. He's that too. So basically he's saying all the signs pointed to Jesus everywhere, all through the Old Testament, every sign pointed to him. So you shouldn't be ignorant and you have no excuse. If they were ignorant, they're not anymore because Peter's made it really clear. So verse 19, he's going to start to plead with them. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That was a lot, but I'm just going to point out that God's plan for his people was always that Jesus would come. A Messiah would come to save them. He sent them to them first because they were the children of the covenant and the promises. But just like we we learn in the parable of the vineyard and the tenants, they ignored the prophets and they killed the son. They refused to receive their Messiah that God had given for them. He is still, God is still giving his national people a chance to repent if they would receive Jesus as their Messiah. That's still on the table today. But as a nation, they really have been cut off from, from, from God because of their choice. Up until this point, they thought it was their heritage that would make them right with God. And Peter's pointing out, no, it's your identification with Jesus. It's your relationship with Jesus that's going to make you right with God. So right now what we're seeing is, as, as Jesus told the apostles, you'll start out in Jerusalem. That's the starting point. You go to them first. You present the gospel and you give them an opportunity and many would believe, but not all. And then from there, they moved out to us. They started to move out to the Gentile nations and and the salvation or the offer of salvation came to us. Okay. That was a really quick run through of that, that, that section. But the part that I really want to focus on this morning is, is this, that the book of Acts provides us with an excellent tutorial on how to preach the true gospel. And so it would behoove us this morning to take a little time to examine this more closely. Uh, not surprisingly, as I, as I pointed out, Peter nails it, right? He's spot on in the way he presents the gospel. How do we know this? Well, a bunch of people get saved. So we know he did it well. He did it exactly like it should have been done because it converted sinners to saints when he got done. Uh, commentators are divided about how many people actually came to know the Lord on this day. Um, there were 5,000, it says, and they don't know if this was 5,000 new converts or if it was... Uh, 2,000 added to the original 3,000 from from before. Uh, you know, as my wife will tell you, I'm an eternal optimist. She won't tell you that, but she's in the, 
she's in the nursery, so she can't. Um, so I'd like to think it's 5,000 that were saved, but the Lord knows, and it's really not that important. A lot of people is, is the point. Now, the reason I think it's so important to talk about this today is there are a lot of people out there, teachers, authors, pastors, who claim to be preaching the gospel. But I don't, I don't hear that very often. At least they're not preaching the whole gospel, which is necessary to save. I remember going to this informational meeting several years back. There was a, um, a minister group that was coming into town, and, and they presented their whole thing, and then there was a Q&A time, and good old Doug Rayleigh decided to ask a question. It was a great question to the person that was leading the meeting. He, he just simply said, hey, would you mind just very simply articulating the gospel for us? <laughs> it was fantastic. Now, you would think that would have been like, okay, sure, here it is. This is a real easy thing. But this guy had the same look on his face as I did back in school when, when the teacher would give me one of those story problems about the two trains leaving two different locations. <clears throat> I'm still like, I don't, I don't know what happened. But he just, he looked like, uh-oh, like a deer in the headlights kind of thing. And I remember thinking, well, this isn't good. And then he just kind of stammered about some stuff and, and basically kind of said, you know, this, I mean, you know, who, who can really answer such a complex thing? You know, it was, he didn't articulate the gospel. And I remember thinking, this is really bad. If you're going to come in and, and begin to do this ministry, that's probably the one thing more than anything else that you ought to be able to articulate. Because as Romans said, it's the power of God to save. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. You know, I said last week, and I'm still astounded by this, that the study that Barna put out recently said that half of millennials think that it's wrong for Christians to share their faith with other people. (laughs) That's nuts. Half think it's wrong to, to offend somebody by forcing your beliefs upon them. The gospel is the message that saves. We need to know what it is, and we need to know how, how to proclaim it. I hear a lot of people talk about sharing the gospel with others, and sometimes I kind of wonder if they understand what this means. So sometimes people will say to me, you know, here, even here at church, they'll talk about, you know, share, ah, I shared the gospel with my neighbor. And, and I'll think, did you? Or did you just say, hey, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, and I invited them to church? Because those are good things. All those things are great to say, but it's not the gospel, right? So it's vital that we get this right, and Peter's message gets it right. So I'm going to break it down into three things that Peter focuses in on. And they're this. The first one is this. He exposes their sin and explains their need for reconciliation. That's the first one. Second one, he exalts the person and work of Jesus as the answer. And the third one, he tells them of the grace that's available to them if they repent. Okay. Now, some of you already checked out because you went, that was three things I have to remember, and I can't do that. You, you know, that's, that's too much. But just hang in there for a minute, all right? The message of the gospel isn't, isn't complicated. It's simply this. We are sinners. Our sin has separated us from God. We need someone who can rescue us and reconcile us to God. And Jesus went to the cross for that purpose. His death, burial, and resurrection are all that we need to be forgiven. If a sinner will acknowledge his sin and turn to Jesus in faith, confessing that he is Lord and believing in his heart that God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. That ought to sound familiar to you. 
because we say it every week and we're going to keep saying it every week. You know what? I mean, if anybody's ever said, you know what, that's kind of like, you know, you guys bang on that drum a lot. Thank you. <laughs> yes, we do because it's the power to save. So I hope that it becomes like a broken record that you can just recite in your sleep, that that's always running through your mind. The problem is this though. That is the message that saves. The problem is that most people don't know that they need to be saved. That's the problem we run out to in the world. Most people think they're okay. Right? When it comes to God, this is what they would say. If he does exist, I think he'd like me. I think we'd be all right. What's not to like? I mean, there's, there's this kind of mindset and idea that, you know, I'm, I'm all right. And if you don't think you're all right, you just find somebody that's way worse than you and point to them and be like, well, man, compared to, you know, Mussolini, I look pretty good. Or whoever. You can pick your own dictator, you know. <clears throat> Attila the Hun. You can always find somebody that's worse and, and, and justify it in your mind that I'm okay. So, so people don't want, they don't want to hear that they're not okay. Nobody wants to hear that. And that's, that's, you know, the gospel says otherwise. And that's the part that people don't want to preach. That's the part that people want to leave out of the gospel. You'll go to a lot of churches and sin will never be talked about. Hell definitely won't ever be talked about, right? Because that'll upset people. Nobody wants to upset anybody anymore. This is eternity we're talking about here. So hang in there with me. So the first thing Peter does in, in his conversation with these people is he exposes their sin and explains their need for reconciliation. It's not easy to do, but it's so important. And this is why the law, by the way, was and still is so important. It shows us the rap sheet right, of all that we're guilty of before God. You go and read, you know, look at the law and you start finding out. The first one says, like, don't have any other gods in the place of the real God. And you're like, uh-oh, I've got a lot of those, you know. Don't use his name in vain. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't be greedy and want other people's stuff. I mean, you just go on to don't, don't, don't lust. All these things and you're going, well, that's, that's not good. If you were to see all of the sins you've committed from day one until now, like printed out and handed to you, that would be a little troubling. Actually, we've done that this morning. We have some trucks that are going <laughs> to... Can you imagine that? <laughs> beep, beep, beep. You start unloading pallets and walking over and handing your... You know, some of you would have a whole truck just dedicated to yourself, maybe. We didn't do that because of the cost of paper. <clears throat> and and we're not omniscient, you know. I don't even want to know, quite frankly. It's like, that'd be, weird. that'd be overwhelming. And I don't, definitely don't want you to look at my sheets. But that's what Peter starts in with. If these people came there that day thinking they were okay with God, he erased all of that, right? They didn't leave there thinking that for certain. Because look at what he indicts them with. You handed the Messiah over to be killed by Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be released in his place. You killed the author of life. That's, that's quite an indictment. That's a bad day to find out that you've done all that. And you see how he makes it personal? You know, this isn't a guilty by association thing. It's personal. He's saying, you did this. He's looking at a crowd of thousands and saying, you did this. All you all. Right? Have you ever made it personal? Have you ever thought about your sin and how it impacted Jesus? <laughs> yeah. Do you, know you know who sent Jesus to the cross? I did. 
I did. I'm guilty. It was my sin that put him there. I killed the author of life. That makes the gospel all the more necessary and all the more amazing when you begin to understand this. Spurgeon points out every sin in the essence of it is a killing of God. It's like, I didn't need to read that. You know, it's like, oh, wow. Every sin in the essence of it is a killing of God. And all I could think about was my sin. This one was a whip across his back. This one was his beard being pulled from his face. This was the crown being shoved down over his, you know, this was the nail being driven. And that was my sin. So by understanding and including the bad news, the good news becomes necessary. It will help people want to know who Jesus is and what he's done. So we start with exposing their sin and their need for reconciliation. And then next, Peter exalts the person and work of Jesus as the answer. There's no question that Peter is preaching a Christ-centered sermon to these people that day. And that's what we strive to do here every Sunday. You know, that, that's a buzzword right now, gospel-centered or Christ-centered sermon. But it really, you know, we want Jesus to not just be something we tack on at the end of a sermon to talk about him. We want him to saturate everything we talk about. We want his person and his work to just fill our sermons. And another good Spurgeon quote that I just love, and I say it as often as I can. He says, no Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. And I feel that in my bones. If I'm not going to tell you about the personal work of Christ, I don't know. I wouldn't even come up here. There's nothing. I don't, you know, and there's so many, there's so many pulpits out there that are, that are Christless. They're not preaching Christ. So the first step in exalting the person of Christ is to clearly identify who Jesus is to the audience that you're addressing. This could vary depending on who you're talking to, because some people have, uh, you know, a basic understanding of the Bible, and some people ain't got nothing. And we live in a day where biblical literacy is is just not something that people have any longer. We grew up in a time we, if you're as old as me, uh, grew up in a time where this was just part of our culture. There were certain things you just knew and understood. That's not the way. It's just not that way anymore. People don't know. The God of the Bible, they don't know the gospel. They don't know any of these things. These are all foreign. So there's times when we're going to have to explain all that. We're going to have to get to it. Now, Peter was talking to a Jewish audience who had a lot of Bible knowledge. So he was able to leave out a lot of stuff that they already knew, which, which helps. They, he could assume that they would be familiar with the terms he's using in his effort to unmask Jesus to them. For instance, even the name Jesus would have meant so much to them. <laughs> you know that? Jesus is the Hebrew equivalent of the the name Joshua, which means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. (laughs) I mean, it's like, there you go. You know, he could have just said that and said, there you go, right? Yahweh is salvation. That's his name. He refers to Jesus in, in other ways to make sure they know who he is. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the author of life. He's the Christ. He's the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He's the prophet that Moses said would come. He's the seed of Abraham. All of these things added up to one conclusion. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is who Jesus is. And they should have understood that without a doubt. Now, if you're talking to somebody who has no biblical framework for understanding Jesus, you have more work to do. 
And this is where, um, if you can think back to a couple of years ago, if you were here, we went through a, a series called the, the Big Story. And the idea was that we would just give a broad overview of the, the meta-narrative, as Jordan would like to call it, of the Bible, the Big Story. And we broke it down into four parts that are very helpful for, for a framework of, as far as how to read the Bible. Does anybody remember what the four parts are? Oh, come on. First one, creation. Second one, the fall. The third one is redemption. And the fourth one is restoration. That is a very clear, concise way to understand the story of the Bible. Creation. God created everything good. The fall. Man broke it all when he sinned. Redemption. God started a rescue mission that centered around sending his son to the cross to die to save sinners. And those who trust in Jesus for salvation will receive forgiveness and the eventual restoration of all things by God in his kingdom. That's a very quick you know, summary of the story of the Bible. And guess who the hero is? Jesus. All of it points to him. He was always plan A in God's economy. So when we're explaining who Jesus is, we do need to find out where people stand and ask them some questions. Listen to what they're saying so that you might be able to, to, to key in on what they need to know. But make sure that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. He's both of those things, and they need to understand that. Not only do we need to let people know who Jesus is, but also what he accomplished. Because the climax of the story is God dying on the cross in place of sinners. Right? This is where you get to start talking about fun stuff, like substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness and propitiation. Right? Some of you guys just look like I told you that story problem with the two trains leaving the station at different times. Those are phenomenal theological concepts. And, and you guys might say, I have no idea what you're talking about, but you know what? You might not know the terms, but week after week after week after week, we preach these things to you. And we sing songs that, that lay this out for you to understand and see. One of the songs I love says this, The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend, the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. By your perfect sacrifice I have been brought near. Your enemy you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. That's good stuff. So when sin has been exposed... And the person and work of Christ has been exalted and proclaimed. The next step is to tell them of the grace that's available to those who repent. I love grace. It's something I don't deserve and something God has offered me. I know a lot of people who think that they're beyond the grace of God, that their sins have just been too much. Trust in the work of Christ on your behalf. His blood can make the, the vilest clean. That's a Wesley thing, I think. Verse 19 says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and turn back. I think the King James says, repent and be converted. 
The phrase literally means think differently and turn. Repentance describes turning around, a change of mind that results in a change of actions or a new direction. So the question is, what are you changing your mind about? Well, we talked about that, about your sin, about God, about where you stand with him and about where, where you'll end up without him. That's what you're changing your mind about. And when your mind changes about those things, when God changes your mind in regards to those things, it's going to create action. It ought to. It, it should mean that you would run to Jesus as fast as you can, leaving your sin behind, leaving the sin you love behind, forsaking everything else, running to him as your only hope, falling on your, your face before him and crying out for his mercy. That would be the proper response. Unfortunately, repentance is not a one-and-done deal. You do that when you come to Christ for salvation. And then as Christians, it seems like the people we talk to week after week after week, we're continually telling them, leave the sin you love and follow Christ. Turn from that and pursue Him. I wish it was a one-and-done deal. But as the, as the, the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's our hope, is that he has, he has done this. He has sealed our hearts in, in his kingdom where we don't have to worry about it anymore. That's what his grace does. Praise God for that. Uh, Tony, Mer, uh, Tony Merida is a guy that uh, we're reading a commentary of his on this right now. And he points out in verses 19 through 21, Peter mentions three benefits of genuine repentance. Total forgiveness, spiritual refreshment, and universal restoration. <laughs> Hear those again and just let them kind of soak in. Total forgiveness. Your sins are blotted out. Spiritual refreshment. Peace and the joy that comes from knowing God. And universal restoration. A time when all the, the yuck of this world will be gone and will be in His kingdom beholding His face and, and forevermore. As important it is for you to be able to know how to preach the gospel to others, as Jerry Bridges once said, and I love this, we need to be the kind of people that preach the gospel to themselves every day. And, and that might sound funny. It's like, well, I've already received Christ. Are you saying something like I'm losing my salvation, so I need to re-preach the gospel to myself? No. Once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're sealed. It's done. It's finished, as he said. But preaching the gospel to yourself every day means reminding yourself of who he is, and what he's done for you. And I need that. Every day, I need to, to spend some time at the cross. It's, it's like true north, right? If you ever get lost, what do you, what do, you do? You pull out a compass. I don't know. We probably don't do that anymore. Now we, now we just GPS, I guess. But I don't know what that was. But we do that. But a compass used to be able to tell you where true north was. And for us, that's what the cross is. Remind yourself of, of the person and work of Christ every day. And we will help you along that too because we will remind you of it every week. That's our, that's our pleasure to be able to do that. Father, thank you so much for the true gospel. Thank you for Peter's willingness to preach it, even when it meant it was going to be uncomfortable for him, even when he probably felt inadequate, and even when he didn't know what the outcome of it would be. And look how you used it, Lord. Thank you that the gospel is the message that saves and that you've given it to your church to take out into the world so that lost people that don't know you yet can receive salvation. Lord, there's grace available for sinners, and we have the message of reconciliation. May we not hide it, Lord. May we, may we be a, a, like a beacon 
uh, in this community and everywhere we go. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, I pray that today might be the day when they bow before you and acknowledge that the Son of God went to the cross in their place and that they would trust in you for salvation. And for those of us that have, Lord, that we would realize the time is short. We don't know how how much longer you will tarry. We don't know uh, when the day of the Lord is. And there's people out there that need to know you. So help us, Lord, to take that seriously and, and to take this message out into the world. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.